years old. He asked to have a friend sleep over. You see, he had learned this practice from his older siblings. Of course, three years old is a little too young to have a sleepover. But my son, Mac, he was smart. He asked me, Daddy, can I have Jesus spend the night? I'm sure he figured Jesus would be the only person I would allow to come over and spend the night. (laughs) But that request got me thinking. What would it be like to have Jesus come and spend the night at our house? To come for a sleepover? And that's the question that we're going to answer tonight. The disciples had the privilege of a three and a half year nonstop sleepover with Jesus. They traveled with him. They ate with him. They spent every waking moment in his presence. What a time it was. And Matthew's reflections on the experience begin in chapter 8. Leprosy was the AIDS of the ancient world. An incurable disease. A white patchy spot on the skin became an ulcerated sore. Leprosy ate away at the flesh and caused physical deformities. Lepers lost ears. They lost noses to the disease. They lost, what did I say? They lost ears and lost noses. They also lost these ears and these noses. They lost fingers. They lost toes. Feet ended up being nubs. Leprosy side effect, you see, was the inability to feel pain. It would numb the nerves so that a leopard could burn his hand and not really know of the injury. Rats would come at night while he was asleep and they would nibble away at his toes. Medical missionary Paul Brand does plastic surgery on lepers in third world countries today. And as a post-op procedure, he sends the patient home with a cat to chase away the rats. Perhaps the worst effect of leprosy was the emotional pain involved. Leopards were quarantined from other people. If a healthy person came near, it was the leper's duty to shout, unclean, unclean, and ward him away. And yet, in verse 2, a leper violates all boundaries. He comes and worships Jesus. And when he declares his faith, Jesus reaches out, touches the man, and makes him whole. Verse 2 says, Jesus put out his hand and touched him. I love that word. The literal translation is, he gripped him. It was a deliberate embrace, maybe even a hug. Jesus didn't have to touch the leper to heal him. But the love of Jesus, the love that Jesus showed this man, healed him emotionally before it ever healed him physically. You see, the holiness of Jesus doesn't keep him from touching what's unclean and outcast. When Jesus enters Capernaum, he's met with a battle-hardened sergeant, a Roman centurion. This soldier has a servant he's fond of who's become paralyzed. A centurion, understand, was a captain of a hundred men. He was a middle manager, you might say. He knew what it meant to give orders and to take orders. And he also knew Jesus' place in the hierarchy. Jesus was God. And he believed that if Jesus gave the decree, the disease would be forced to flee. Understand also, next to lepers, Roman centurions were the most hated men in Israel. They represented the foreign occupation. And this centurion felt his unworthiness, so much so that he felt unworthy to even invite Jesus into his home. But he trusted in Jesus' mercy to heal his servant. Most Jews would have had no time for sergeants. But Jesus loved this man. 
And he marveled at the man's faith. He healed his servant with just a word. But first he said a word about the Roman in verse 10. I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Already, Jesus heals a leper and a Gentile. Once with a touch to show his love and once without a touch to show his power. Jesus is alleviating human suffering, but more importantly, he's challenging false notions about God. This is a characteristic of his miracles. In verse 15, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. He touched her, we're told. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. Notice the work of God prompts her to work for God. He touched her, then she arose and served him. That's the way it always works. When you taste of Jesus' mercy, when he touches your life, you'll want to get up and begin to serve him. In chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, Jesus challenges a couple of would-be disciples. They both want to follow Jesus, but he marches to a different drummer than the beat of this world. His kingdom is not about getting ahead. It's not about settling down. Foxes and birds have permanent homes, but Jesus is just passing through. He says even a funeral is no excuse for settling down when Jesus is on the move. And speaking of on the move, Jesus set sail with his disciples in verse 23. You know, the Sea of Galilee was notorious for its sudden storms. A cold front swoops down from the north and it hits the warm air over the lake and presto, the perfect storm. Jesus doesn't panic, though. In fact, he's a sound asleep in the back of the boat. In verse 25, the disciples are shook up. And so they wake up Jesus and they cry out, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Jesus rebukes the disciples for their little faith. And then in verse 26, he rebukes the wind and waves. You know, it's interesting. A rebuke is something you do to a demon. You rebuke a demon. Apparently, when Jesus calmed the storm... He thwarted a satanic attack. On the other shore, Jesus is again confronted with demons. Two crazed demoniacs. It's interesting what the demons ask in verse 31. If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Notice demons don't want to be disembodied spirits. They immediately look for a body to inhabit even if they all have to hog a pig. Guys, it's interesting. The Holy Spirit and evil spirits desire to embody humans. The Holy Spirit wants to embody us in order to conform us into the image of Jesus, whereas the evil spirits want to embody us to deform us and to destroy our lives. It's interesting. When the demons enter the pigs... They go hog wild and they drive the pigs over the cliff. They drown in the sea. It's the case of the deviled ham. Where the demons went afterwards, we really don't know, but I'm sure the swine, you know where they went. They all went to hog heaven. Oh, boy. In chapter 9, Jesus crosses back over the lake to Capernaum. So far, he's proven his mastery over disease, over demons, over nature, even over a perfect storm. It's no match for Jesus either. Now he confronts our greatest enemy, sin. 
You know, the other Gospels tell us that a huge crowd in the room forced the lame man's friends to go up on the roof, tear out part of the roof, and lure the man down. But his friends were also let down. They were hoping he would be healed. Instead, Jesus said, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. This upset the Jews too. But for a different reason. Only God could forgive sin. What's Jesus doing forgiving sin? And yet that was Jesus' point. He was God. And I love his answer in verses 5 and 6. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And the man did. Jesus is master over disease. He's master over demons. He's master over nature, over sin. And he's master over the hearts of men. When he invites this greedy tax collector named Matthew to follow me, the man obeys. It's amazing, really. He's so enthralled with Jesus, he gets up from his table, he leaves his business, his livelihood, his career, and he begins to follow. On an Israel tour, our God showed us the Department of Treasury the Israeli IRS, and he jokingly called it the new Wailing Wall. (laughs) Hey, Jesus even saves IRS agents. The Jews of Jesus' day considered a tax collector worse than a leper or a centurion. He was a turncoat Jew working for the occupying Romans. And that's why Jesus' critics question him. Why would you reach out to a traitor? And Jesus answers them in verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, fasting is putting a legitimate physical appetite on hold in order to seek after God. It's a fast track to communion with God. But why would anyone want to fast when God Himself is sitting at the table Asking you to share a meal. Jesus' disciples will fast one day. But at the moment, they're too busy spending time with God to fast. They have Jesus. This subject comes up because the Pharisees want to know why they fasted and why Jesus didn't fast. Or why the disciples of Jesus didn't fast. Jesus tells them, though, that this is not the only difference that's going to crop up between them and his disciples. You see, structures of the past have no use when God does a fresh work. Outdated, inflexible methods are like old wineskins. When the new wine of the Spirit begins to expand, it bursts those old structures. We need new wineskins. In many churches, the Spirit of God is stifled by tradition, by rigidity, by the unwillingness to change. Believers in Jesus need to be flexible. We need to be adaptable. We need to be willing to change and responsive to the Holy Spirit. Remember the last words of a dying church. We've always done it that way. (laughs) Next, Jesus is approached by a Jewish ruler whose daughter just died. Now understand, this is a loving dead. His girl was his life. Luke says she was 12 years old at the time. For 12 years, dad and daughter had played Barbies together. They had been out on dates. They had danced across the living room floor. 
They had dreamed about their future together. Now she's dead. His life is lifeless. In contrast to their joy, there was another lady in the crowd that day who for the same 12 years had lived in misery. She was hemorrhaging uncontrollably and was desperate to to be healed. And she thought as she saw Jesus, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. It's interesting. Jesus was pushing through that crowd. Hundreds of people were touching him. But he knew this woman's touch. He could differentiate it. Whenever someone reaches out in faith to touch Jesus, it always gets his attention. And he told the woman in verse 22, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And she was healed. When Jesus arrived at the ruler's house, he found people weeping and wailing. You see, rich families in those days would hire professional mourners to grieve for their dead loved ones. When Jesus says the girl only sleeps, we're told in verse 24, they laughed him to scorn. But understand, Jesus gets the last laugh. He kicks out the mockers and he raises the dead girl. Guys, if you want a miracle, first, get rid of the mourners. Even if the mourner is you. Stop your belly aching. Stop your doubting. Stop your mocking. Jesus doesn't like to work in an atmosphere of negativity. Jesus responds to faith. Jesus moves in when the mourners move out. In the remainder of chapter 9, Jesus opens blind eyes. Mute mouths begin to speak. Verse 35 is a peek at Jesus' daytimer. He was constantly on the move. Look at the phrases. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, healing every sickness. And what motivated Jesus' tireless ministry? Verse 36, he was moved with compassion. Rather than be put out by people, he put himself in their shoes. Jesus got things done, and yet he realized there was so much left to be done. He says in verses 37 and 38, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We pray the same prayer today. Opportunities abound. What we need is laborers. Speaking of sending laborers into the harvest, in chapter 10, Jesus sends out 12 disciples, the starting 12. And he equips them with power over demons and disease. Notice these men are called disciples in verse 1, but then in verse 2 they're called apostles. Disciple means learner. The word apostle means one who is sent out. A Christian should never stop being a disciple or a learner. We should learn. Always be learning. But some people learn and learn and learn and yet never do anything with what they've been taught. God wants disciples to also become apostles, to move out, to be a witness for Him. Chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, lists this 12 disciples, the starting 12. And notice He lists them in pairs because Jesus sent them out two by two. That's always a good idea when we go out, to go out two by two. Jesus doesn't just randomly send out these disciples. There's a method here. 
Here's chapter 10 in five words. Take note, five P's if you want to write them down. Pairs, priorities, persecution, protection, and passion. He sent them out in pairs. Then in verses 5 through 15, he addresses priorities. Basically, he says, target the Jews, preach the kingdom, work miracles, and charge nothing for it. Freely received, freely give. For some ministries today, it's the charging nothing for it that's the real miracle. These disciples are to travel light. They're to look to people for support. Then Jesus says in verse 14, Whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. In other words, don't get bogged down with people who won't listen. Guys, the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of people who will listen and will take heed to the message. Verses 16 through 26 warn us of persecution. The disciples are going to go out as sheep in the midst of wolves. They need to be harmless but always heads up. Jesus predicts his disciples will be brought to trial before the Gentiles. Don't worry what you'll say when it happens. Verse 19 says, It will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Guys, when you're put on the spot, trust the Holy Spirit to give you the words to speak. The Holy Spirit will come to the rescue. Trust Him. In verses 27 through 33, Jesus promises protection. And first, the best protection of all is knowing who to fear and who not to fear. Jesus warns us in verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Second, if God charts a bird's flight pattern, then He certainly cares for us. He'll protect us. He'll watch over us. Verse 31 says, Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 30 even says, The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Can you believe that? Isn't that exciting? God cares for you so much. If you're a woman with a black hair, you have 110,000 hairs in your head. If you're a blonde you have 140,000 hairs. Now imagine, Jesus has every hair on your head numbered. And remember, you lose 100 hairs every day. Some of, you are, some of you men are losing a lot more than that. So, I mean, he's keeping up with it. A man shaves off 1 64th of an inch of beard daily. You don't think that's much, but it adds up. If you're shaving from the age of 20 to 65, a man over that course of time will shave 23 feet of beard. And yet the Bible says that the hairs on your head are numbered. God's concern for us tracks every single hair. That's incredible. Finally, verses 32 through 42, Jesus challenges our passion. First, go public with your faith. If you deny Jesus publicly, then he'll deny you. Second, faith splits families. Is your love for Jesus stronger than even family ties? And third, take up your cross and follow Jesus. You know, it seems that every decade has a theme. Every decade has its own theme. 
In the 60s, it was find yourself. In the 70s, it was improve yourself. In the 80s, indulge yourself. In the 90s, excuse yourself. But you know, Jesus says to every age, deny yourself. He who finds his life will lose it, Jesus says. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the old rhyme in reverse. It's finders, weepers, losers, keepers. Chapter 11 opens with John, a jailbird in the Alcatraz of ancient Israel. The fortress of Machaerus. John was locked up for confronting King Herod's sin. Earlier, John had introduced Jesus as the Messiah, but now doubts had crept into John's mind. And John sends his disciples to Jesus to confirm that he is indeed the coming one. Jesus answers John's doubts with Scripture. Guys, that's the way God handles our doubts as well, through Scripture. Remember Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Jesus quotes Isaiah, and he tells John to compare the actions that he's been, the deeds that he's been doing, his actions with what was prophesied concerning the Messiah. And when you do, the conclusion is obvious. Yes, Jesus was the Messiah. He had done the things Isaiah said he would do. Then Jesus encourages John with a ringing endorsement. The Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, spoke of John. John was God's messenger sent to prepare the way for Jesus. John was as good as any man in the Old Testament. And yet the least member of Jesus' family, that includes you, includes me, outshines John. Why? Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You see, Jesus says John was the greatest of those who were born of women, but not of those, even you and me, who have been born again by the Spirit of God. If you're a people pleaser, if that's your tendency, read carefully chapter 10, verses 16 through 19, because even Jesus, the Son of God, did not please everyone. You see, John kept himself. He was into evangelizing, not socializing. Jesus was the opposite. He mixed with the people. He went to their parties. He hung out in an attempt to reach out. But the Jews rejected both Jesus and John. Neither pleased them, and neither will you please the fickleness of people. Trust me. Don't waste your time trying. There is only one person you need to please, and that's the Lord Jesus. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were all villages on or near the Sea of Galilee. These people were privileged to see many of Jesus' miracles, and yet with privilege comes responsibility. And because they failed to repent, they were destined to be judged. If your heart is heavy tonight, if your spirit is tired, in chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus gives to us one of the most marvelous invitations in all the Scripture. He says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's the secret to a restful rather than a stressful life. Jesus calls us to do three things. Come to him, yoke with him, and learn from him. Usually a younger ox was harnessed to the older, stronger ox. The yoke was made in such a way 
that it distributed the weight of the load onto the stronger ox so that all the younger ox had to do was just sort of learn the ropes and go along for the ride. That's your job. Jesus is the lead ox. He's the strong ox. He's the one that carries the load. Submit to him. And the burden falls on his shoulders. Jesus carries the load. He does the work. If we trust in him, and if you're in a yoke that chokes, the burden you carry didn't come from Jesus. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, you can never say that, though, about the Pharisees. <laughs> they laid heavy burdens on people. Their legalism was oppressive, especially the laws that they had concocted for observing the Sabbath. You know, the fifth commandment, it was a broad and a simple Commandment. Very simple. Basically, it said, hey, take one day, one day of worship in order to balance out the other six days of work. But the Jewish Talmud, the teaching of the rabbis, included 24 chapters of detailed legislation on exactly how the Sabbath was to be kept. In Matthew chapter 12, the cops of legalism try to bust Jesus on some Sabbath violations. In verse 1, Jesus and his pals stop in a grain field to snack on some Wheaties. The Pharisees accuse him of sabbatical work. And Jesus recalls David's example. Hey, it's okay to place human need over religious ritual. Compassion over tradition. The Pharisees were strict legalists. So much so that they considered even the act of healing as work and forbidden on the Sabbath day. And this infuriated Jesus. If you interpret an act of God as a bad thing, then there's something wrong with your interpretation. And Jesus says in verse 12, It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he proceeds to do some good. He works a miracle. Puts it right in their face. And he heals a man with a withered hand. Jesus healed that man that day in Capernaum. But he also opened a rift between he and the Pharisees. And from this day forward, verse 14 tells us that they plotted to kill Jesus. In verses 18 through 21, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42, and Isaiah's predictions about the Messiah. You know, most Jews had some wrong assumptions about the Messiah. They believed that he would wipe out the Gentile nations. Jesus recalls Isaiah's very different picture. Verses 18 to 21 say the Messiah comes to save Gentiles, not destroy them. We're told a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. Hey, Jesus despises the killer instinct. <laughs> That's right. When a man goes down... He's not about to finish him off. Rather, he takes that man who's fallen and he props him back up. A bruised reed he won't break. He takes the little bit of fire that's left, those few little dying embers, and he begins to fan them back to flame. Oh, he nurtures the broken, the burned out, back to health. That's my Jesus. When Jesus casts out a demon, the Pharisees accuse him of being in league with the devil. How ludicrous. Why would Satan cast out his own operatives? Jesus provides a better explanation for the casting out of the demons. In chapter 12, verse 29, he says, How can one enter a strong man's house 
and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. You see, Jesus had the power to bind Satan's influence and plunder what was once under his control. This is an important principle in spiritual warfare. You see, works are worthless until we pray. It's through prayer that we bind Satan's influence in Jesus' name. Then we can go in and do the works. Then we can be an effective witness and take the plunder. The unpardonable sin, or what is called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is mentioned in verses 31 and 32. Understand, the Pharisees had rejected the Father's testimony of Jesus in the Scriptures. They had rejected Jesus' words as well. And now in attributing His miracles to demons, they were rejecting the true source of His power, which was the Holy Spirit. Now here's the idea. The Father pointed to Jesus. Then the Son pointed to Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit pointed to Jesus. But the Spirit is heaven's last word to the world on the Messiah. What Jesus is saying here is you can reject the Father's witness, you can reject the Son's witness, but you still have the Spirit's witness. But then if you go and reject the Spirit's witness, there's no more hope. You've rejected heaven's last word. The Jews wanted Jesus to do a miracle, to prove that He was the Messiah. But they wanted Him to do this miracle on cue. They wanted a sign. Basically, they said, hey... Be like Babe Ruth. Call your own shot. Tell us where you're going to hit the home run and then hit it there. But hadn't Jesus done enough? Hadn't He worked enough miracles? You see, their desire was a smokescreen to hide their unbelief. And Jesus gives them but one sign. He says in verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It was the sign of His resurrection. The only sign He gave them. In chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus says that you can boot a demon out of his house, but if the house doesn't get a new inhabitant, that same demon will return with his buddies. His statement was a commentary on the times. You see, Jesus had been marching through the countryside. He had been winning victories over demons and disease. But unless folks were willing to surrender their hearts to him, those victories would be short-lived. You see, getting rid of the demons in our life is the easy part. Jesus is all-powerful. He can overthrow the demons. But then surrendering our lives to Jesus and building a new life around Him, the growth that comes after conversion, that's the crucial part that ensures the lasting victory. At the end of chapter 12, Jesus proves that He's not a mama's boy. Mary and His brothers, His half-brothers, they come to take Jesus back home. Perhaps they've heard that the Pharisees are out to kill Him. They're afraid for his safety. But Jesus ignores them. He leaves them outside. He points to his disciples and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Spiritual ties are more important than even family ties. Our earthly families stay intact, but for a few short years, while our spiritual family will be our family forever. Realize, in a single day, Americans buy 200 miles worth of neckties. They eat 170 million eggs and 12 million chickens. 
They spent $125,000 on Elvis Presley tours and memorabilia. Every day they score 110 holes in one. Where's mine? (laughs) Every day, 200 Americans become millionaires. (laughs) Again, where's mine? (laughs) And every day, our federal government issues 100 pages of new regulations. Now, that's an awful lot for a single day. But not as much as the Jewish theologians tried to cram into a single day. You see, the Jews believed that in one day, God would right all wrongs. He would wipe out evil. He would engineer peace. He would establish a physical kingdom on the earth. And in a sense, that's true. At the end of the age, God will intervene in in human affairs. He will establish His kingdom. And it will come quickly and swiftly. But in another sense, Jesus was and has been at work on His kingdom for 2,000 years. He's been building the kingdom slowly, gradually in the hearts of men. As one man puts it, God's kingdom will not come in a single day. It will not be left with the morning milk. Today, Jesus is building a spiritual kingdom in people's hearts. In verse 11, Jesus speaks of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 of chapter 13. You see, the Jews believed the kingdom of God would be an earthly, political kingdom. And it will be one day. But what was a mystery was that first God planned to establish His kingdom spiritually, hidden in the hearts of men. This is what's important for you to understand. Before God's kingdom appears in a tangible, visible form, it first grows gradually and subtly and invisibly and spiritually. Matthew 13 is a seminal chapter. It consists of eight parables called the kingdom parables, And it instructs us on the nature of God's kingdom in the world today. First is the parable of the sower. The Jews thought that the reign of God or the kingdom of God would fall like a hammer. That it would pound out God's will. But Jesus says it's like a seed, not pounded, but planted in the hearts of men. You see, the seed is God's word. And there's life in the seed. But the growth of that seed depends on the condition of the soil in which it's planted. This means that the kingdom can be resisted. And this was a revolutionary thought. The Jews thought that God's kingdom would steamroll over man's will. But amazingly, Jesus says it requires our cooperation. The human heart comes in four conditions, four types of soil. There's hard ground. Here the devil distracts us from the word. It steals away the seed. Then there's stony ground. That's a superficial attitude. It has no depth. The word fails to take root, and when trials spring up, we stumble. And then there's the thorny ground. And here the seed of God's word gets choked out by the riches and the cares of this world. Guys, is your heart hard ground? Do you get distracted? Is it stony ground? Is it superficial? Is it thorny ground? Are you too concerned with the things of this world to take heed to God's word? Or is it fertile ground? A heart that's soft and receptive and open and sincere. It's here that the Word produces fruit. And Jesus said, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Second is the parable of the wheat and tares. Both the wheat and the weeds grow up side by side until harvest time. 
You see, the Jewish concept of the kingdom was instant and absolute judgment. But before the kingdom abolishes an evil world, it grows up in the midst of that evil world. And therefore, kingdom living requires patience and purity. Third is the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of God begins like a small little seed, small and insignificant. No one notices it growing. It develops under the world's radar screen, if you will. You see, the world is impressed with flesh and flash. Rarely do the headlines of this world showcase God's kingdom, the work that God is doing. But one day, His kingdom will fill the whole earth. Fourth is the parable of the yeast. The kingdom of God influences us from the inside out. Earthly kingdoms use laws and legislation to conform behavior. God's kingdom relies on His Word and His Spirit to transform character. You see, God uses persuasion rather than coercion. It's been said, Caesar hoped to reform men by changing institutions and laws. Christ wished to remake institution and lessen laws by changing men. The same lesson is taught in the fifth and sixth parables. The treasure in the field, the pearl on the bottom of the ocean are both hidden from view. Don't expect this world to notice your value, your worth. The esteem that comes from worldly pursuits is transitory. Fame is fleeting. Our true value is measured by what Jesus is willing to pay to obtain us. He bought the whole world just to retrieve you, the treasure in the field. He sold all that he had to purchase that pearl. You and me, we are of infinite value in Christ Jesus. The seventh parable is the parable of the dragnet. It has nothing to do with Joe Friday, don't worry. It's a fishing net, and it's swept through the water. It catches both edible and inedible fish. You know, when God begins to work in a wonderful way, all kinds of people get swept up in the enthusiasm. And some people get on board for the wrong reasons. It's cool. This is cool. Oh, man, this is a way I can impress that cute girl over there. Oh, this is a way I can get close to my boss. I just like the music. People can get on board for all kinds of reasons. But they can, they don't, not all people are hungering and thirsting after God. The disciples, remember, experienced this firsthand. Judas was one of their members, but he ended up the betrayer. God will sort out the catch at the end of the age. The eighth parable harmonizes Jesus' new insights into the kingdom of God with what the Old Testament had taught about the kingdom. Both were right in essence. He says the kingdom is like a homeowner who decorates his house with both new and old furniture. New ideas and old ideas. You see, in a single day, God will establish an earthly, political, tangible, dominating kingdom. But today... A spiritual, invisible kingdom is invading the hearts of men. Unnoticed by the world, but growing nevertheless. You see, new ideas and old ideas combine to complete the picture of God's kingdom. Chapter 13 ends with a homecoming. Jesus returns to Nazareth and he teaches in the synagogue. His peers are impressed, but they know his brothers and his sisters. They grew up with Jesus. They're just too proud to think that Jesus is anything more than a boy from the hood. As the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. 
Verse 58 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They hindered what could have been because of their lack of faith. Are you hindering the miracles that Jesus wants to work in your life because of your lack of faith? When we doubt, that's what we do. We hinder God's work. Lois Cheney writes these words. There was a place where the unbelief was so great that Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, could not heal and help. And so he left them. And then she asks, has anyone seen Jesus lately? It's a good question to leave on. Don't forget, ladies' retreat's coming up. Ladies, if you'd like to sign up, you'll have to walk up in order to grow up in the Lord. They'll be taking sign-ups in the upper room right after the Bible study. Don't forget baptism next Sunday morning between our two morning services. And hey, have you been taking advantage of the Bible verse, the Bible scan memory verse that's printed on the back page of your study guide? Everybody get that out? This week's memory verse is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. You want to read it together? Everybody? Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Ready? Come to me, all you who labor and are... He- I'm going to start over and give you a good chance to... That was just practice. You ready? Got you going. Everybody ready together? Three, two, one. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden... And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, parents, let me give you a little tip. That verse is also on your child's Bible scan study guide. So guess what you could do this week? You and your kids could memorize those verses together and you could do that every week and you could hide God's word in the heart of your child so that that child won't sin against God as they grow older. Wouldn't that be a blessing? Let's pray for our president, for our country. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we do want to have faith. We, we don't want to be, Lord, we don't want to miss one single miracle you have for us. Give us faith, Lord. Help us trust in you. And Lord, I pray for our country. Lord, I pray that your will would be done. I pray that you'll be with our president. Lord, I I know that he, he knows you. And Father, I pray that you will lead him and guide him. And you'll help him in these difficult decisions that are before him. Father, we love you. Protect our, our servicemen. Lord, just protect our nation. Lord, use this to draw us back to you. Father, thank you for your word tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. And all God's people said, you're dismissed.